0: Hello, welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We are on episode 20, and it's the Acre of Death, part 3. It's hard to believe, but we've had a good look at this carnage infested battlefield called Spionkop for two weeks, and there's a lot more to say. It's the 24th of January, 1900, and the battle has been underway for 10 hours. More than 1,000 British soldiers are already casualties and the entire senior officer corps on the summit of the mountain have been killed. General Redverse Buller, who'd put two-thirds of his Natal army in the hands of the newly arrived General Warren, now realises that things have gone from bad to worse on the top of Spion Corp. It was supposed to be a two-pronged attack, with Warren leading one group and Buller the other, followed by a push straight to Ladysmith. But it didn't quite work out that way. Eventually, on Buller's urgings, Warren had put Lieutenant Colonel Thornycroft in command, promoted in the middle of the battle. Just before the blazing hot midday, he sent a wire to Warren 16 kilometers away to the west. This is Buller's telegram. Unless you put some really good hard fighting man in command of the hill, you will lose it. I suggest Thornycroft. Warren agreed, but this was perhaps too little too late as we'll see. Around 12.15pm, Thornycroft was on the summit of Speoncorp in the main trench, surrounded by the dead, when a messenger ran up and saluted. Before he could tell the officer that he'd been promoted to general, the poor messenger fell on Thornycroft. He'd been shot through the head. About ten minutes later, a lieutenant crawled up the slope to Thornycroft and shouted above the exploding shells and moors arounds, you are a general! Reinforcements were on their way, led by General Coke. Yes, before everyone has a giggle, there was actually a General Coke on the mountain of Spionkop in January 1900. On the summit, the new General Thornycroft and his men had now been on the go for hours, without food or water, and it was well over 35 degrees Celsius, a cloudless day, midsummer South Africa. They had watched hundreds of their friends die or were writhing in agony. They were alone on the summit of a wretched hill and their morale flagged. The Boers were trying to take prisoners when some reinforcements arrived on the hill. A company of Middlesex Regiment with fixed bayonets were approaching and Thornycroft yelled to them to charge! The Boers retreated with a few prisoners to their defensive line on the crest. In the next hour, between 1 and 2 p.m., Boer artillery raked the hill with fire once more, but British reinforcements continued to arrive, well, small groups at least. It looked like the game was up for the few hundred Boers on the summit. Thornycroft wrote a message and gave it to Staff Officer Colonel Sandbach, who took it to Warren and it read, ''Hung on till last extremity with old force.'' Some of the Middlesex here now, and I hear Dorsets coming up, but force really inadequate to hold such a large perimeter. What reinforcements can you send to hold the hill tonight? We are badly in need of water, many killed and wounded. What was transpiring was the most critical battle for the British Empire in almost 90 years, and that was left, effectively, in the hands of a colonel, who was now a general. All the other generals were dead or at the base of the mountain. It was four o'clock when that note reached Warren, who was in a state of funk. He was still really confused. General Coke, who was supposed to be in charge of the reinforcements and was supposed to be on the cop, was not. He was asleep halfway up the hill under a mimosa tree and later described that it had been interminably hot. On the British right flank, Major General Littleton became aware of the machinations and the chaos on the Corp, and he decided to act. And this one moment had a dramatic effect on the day-long battle. He moved his men to the eastern edge of Spion which is marked by twin spindly peaks, which are around a kilometre from the main summit and the flat tabletop to the west. Littleton knew that should he be able to climb these two peaks, he would see both the main trench, where the British were being slaughtered, and the Boers. And more importantly, from there he could see Ladysmith. Because we mustn't forget, this battle was ostensibly in order to relieve Ladysmith, which had been besieged for months. From these two peaks, Littleton knew he'd also command the Boer position of Alo Knoll, where their pom-pom, semi-automatic cannon, and Krupp's guns were placed, but also have a view of General Berger and the Carolina Commando, their tents beyond. General Buller, at his HQ, could also see clearly what was going on through the naval telescope, and he was livid. Buller was bitter. He'd been demoted before the battle, with Lord Roberts on his way from England to replace Buller as the commander-in-chief of all forces in South Africa. Now his subordinate Warren had bungled what he'd thought would have been a bloody but successful encounter on the cop. Buller was burning with resentment. Warren had put him in the situation by failing to attack early at Tabanyama all the way back on the 17th of January. Instead, he'd waited until the 23rd, and by then the Boers had moved their men and artillery into positions to defend. We've heard in previous podcasts how the British moved like a slow-motion centipede. Buller's two-pronged plan was in danger. Remember, he had moved a third of his men to Port Gita's Drift and was supposed to strike out from there after Warren had been successful at Trichard's Drift and then climbed the Kop. Meanwhile, General Warren was trying to extricate himself from this disaster. He asked Littleton to help, who was in command of some of the reinforcements. Littleton sent two infantry battalions and most of his mounted troops up to Speonkop, Buller didn't know, and bizarrely, Littleton didn't actually tell Warren that's what he'd done. I've tried to make sense of these battles, and repeatedly we've seen how the British, their firm discipline, seemed to break down in the midst of pressure. I'm sure there's an analysis somewhere of why, but just from these initial stories we've heard for these months, you have to ask, who trained these leaders? They appeared in their well-ironed uniforms and marched in perfectly straight lines, but when the shooting started, their well-drilled leaders appeared to suffer from an inability to think laterally. Well, at this point in the battle, Littleton launched his diversionary attack. The second Scottish Rifles climbed Kop to join Thornycroft's troops, while the 1st Rifle Brigade attacked straight up the Twin Peaks to the east of Kop. The roasting hot day came to a close, and Warren began to organise relief and supplies for the hard-pressed infantry on the summit of Spionkop. Still under artillery fire, Thornycroft and his men, however, were at the end of their tether. Warren had sent Thornycroft no orders of any sort during the day, other than his appointment in command. And he now sent no message to inform Thornycroft that substantial reinforcements were on their way. We'll shift our gaze to Denise Rates, who was lying amongst the Boers in the top of Spionkop, the 17-year-old we followed throughout the start of the conflict. He tells a truly odd story about one of the Boer soldiers. He was a German called von Brusevich, who'd been dishonorably discharged from the German army a few years before after having an argument with a civilian at a cafe in Berlin and running the poor man through with his sword. Rates describes him as arrogant, of the officer class, and von Brusewitz kept standing up to fire at the British lying nearby on the top of Kop. He was warned repeatedly to lie flat, but ignored these prognostications. Eventually, Rates writes, After he had tempted Providence, several times the inevitable happened. I saw him rise once more, and lighting a cigarette, puff away careless of the flying bullets until we heard a thud, and he fell dead within a few feet of me, shot through the head. And once more, our curious South African history leaves a footnote. Van Bruselitz's black staff member somehow had heard about the shooting, and shortly afterwards appeared amongst the Boers at the summit of Spionkop. He moved from rock to rock, looking for Van Bruselitz, but suddenly he too was shot dead. These bitter moments, where the shades of grey in our narrative are hard to comprehend, but give credence to the lie both the Boers and British told about their black fellow comrades who perished alongside both armies. That invisible fact has been overturned in recent times, but it took a long while before white South Africans were willing to discuss the fact that black South Africans were not just digging trenches and driving ox wagons in this war. They were right at the front line, some were armed, many worked in the crucial position of intelligence gathering, and many were to be targeted specifically because they were so important. But back on the summit of Spionkorp, like the British, the Boers had been lying in the intense sun all day. Reitz further describes horrors, but also the fact that the Boers believed the British to be winning this interminable fight for the mountain. Around us were the dead men covered with swarms of flies, attracted by the smell of blood. We did not know the cruel losses the English were suffering, and we believed they were easily holding their own. The stalemate continued after dark. Dozens of Boer men began to descend, retreating without orders. When darkness fell, the firing stopped. In a strange, surreal landscape, dominated, in that silence by moaning men and scraping sounds as some crawled away and other whispering. Reitz remained at his post, a few metres from the British, he writes, For a long time I remained at my post, staring into the night where the enemy lay, so close I could hear the cries of their wounded and the murmur of voices behind their breastwork. Suddenly Rates realises he's on his own. The other Boers around him have vanished. He crawls backwards until meeting up with a dozen other Boers led by Commandant Opperman. It's 10 o'clock on the 24th of January at night. The Boers retreat without a sound, stumbling back down the north side of Spionkop and falling over the dead as they descended. They made their way to the Carolina commando in pitch dark. There all was chaos, with most Boers believing the British would appear at any moment and roll them up as they marched to Ladysmith. Ah yes, but things are never simple in war. As the commander members swore at each other and rushed to depart, a horseman galloped up. It was Louis Boer Rates continues. He addressed the men from the saddle. Telling them of the shame that would be theirs if they deserted their posts in this hour of danger. And so eloquent was his appeal that in a few minutes the men were filing off into the dark to reoccupy their positions on either side of the Spionkorp gap. A disaster had been averted for the Boers. As dawn broke, they looked up to a wondrous sight. Two of their own men were waving their hats on the summit. What had happened? Where were the British? This is what transpired after dark, as Thomas Pakenham explains in his dry way. There was only one man who could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, and that was General Warren. Napoleon said that the best generals are those who make the fewest mistakes, and we can view war also as a contest of blunders. On a battlefield the size of a large theatre, Two armies were separated by a gap across which you could have thrown a biscuit. Warren, back at his HQ at Three Tree Hill, slowed down still further. You remember how we described in the two previous podcasts how Warren had ambled up to the mountain, taking a week where he should have taken a few hours to get things done. Well, it was now close to 9pm, so we're going to go back to have a look at what General Warren was doing, and he had still not decided to send basics required up to the hill to Thornycroft. Not only that, but he had ordered Colonel Coke, you remember the man who slept under a mimosa tree, back to HQ, leaving Thornycroft alone once more on the summit with a few hundred survivors. No water, no spare ammunition, no fresh troops, no large guns, no medicines, no stretchers had been sent. And it had been dark now for five hours. Then we need to... Revisit another strange twist in the story. Winston Churchill, morning post-war correspondent, then at 10 at night, volunteered to take a note to Thornycroft and tell him that a unit of artillery and 1,400 men were on their way. While that was Churchill's second visit up the macabre hill, this time he saw less but was more unnerved. And it's at this moment that both Churchill and the other famous leader, Mahatma Gandhi, passed each other on the slopes of Spionkop. Gandhi, as we heard in earlier podcasts, had formed the Indian Medical Corps, which had been sent to the Natal Front in December. He'd helped the wounded at the Battle of Colenso, but this time the Medical Corps were even more crucial. It was this night as Churchill hurried up the hill that he literally passed Gandhi carrying a stretcher. While they did not know each other at this time, in later letters and descriptions it became apparent that this was indeed the truth. Two leaders who were fated and they never met face-to-face, of course, had passed each other in the middle of a battle, in the middle of the dark night, in the middle of Africa. Churchill found Thornycroft sitting on the ground on the summit, surrounded by the remainder of a number of units. The Dorsets, three Lancashire battalions, the Imperial Light Infantry, the Middlesex, the Scottish Rifles. They had ceased to exist as regiments, and were bundled together, clustered around junior officers and NCOs. Thornycroft by now had what we'd call post-traumatic stress disorder. He was in shock. He'd been forced to remain on the hill for 12 hours and had been fighting for 16 hours. And so Thornycroft then told Churchill, Better six good battalions safely down the hill than a bloody mop-up in the morning. Thornycroft spoke to the remaining officers. Two agreed to retreat, but one, Lieutenant Colonel Hill of the Middlesex, did not. And furthermore, in some bizarre debate, the top of a mountain in the middle of... Night, he began to argue with Thornycroft on the matter of rank. Hill didn't apparently know that Thornycroft had been promoted to general. No one listened to Hill, and so began the shameful British retreat, leaving their dead and wounded on the summit of Spion Kop. As the seventeen hundred men slowly descended, they walked into Captain Phillips, Coke's staff officer, who tried to halt the retreat. He failed. And he also failed to get a message to General Warren quickly enough about what was going on. Thornycroft asked Churchill what he should do, and Churchill told him to do what he thought best. Near the foot of Spionkop, Thornycroft and his ragged army ran into the reinforcements on their way up. Colonel Sim, who was in command of these 1,400 men, handed Thornycroft a note from General Warren, written earlier, urging him to hold the hill at all costs, but... It was too late. I have done all I can, said Thorneycroft, and I am not going back. So the reinforcements turned around and joined the retreat. At about midnight the moon rose on the summit to reveal 243 British dead. Seventy had been shot through the right side of their heads in the first Boer fusillade as they fired along the length of the shallow trench. Bodies were piled three deep a ghastly and ghostly sight described by those who saw it. Down at the bottom of the hill, General Warren was awoken at 2 a.m. when Thorneycroft arrived. Buller was also awoken at his HQ around the same time when he received a telegraph. Buller immediately blamed Warren while recognising the extraordinary courage displayed by Thorneycroft. Back on the summit, Boer General Louis Boerter bumped into the British medical orderlies, including Gandhi, He exchanged condolences with the medical teams and then allowed the British dead to be buried in their hopelessly shallow trench, which was now their grave. All the next day and the day after, ox wagons, stretcher bearers and horse and carriages carried the wounded back to the British main medical tents at Fort Ellis. The British retreated back south across the Tugela, which was still flooding. At least no one died there. But, as the last wagon crossed, the Boers fired one more shell for old time's sake. The British had lost 1,500 men killed, wounded or captured, and the Boers 335. The British were also back where they started ten days earlier. Mahatma Gandhi had been kept busy. There is an amazing description of him on the day after the battle by one of his orderlies. Gandhi was one of the two stretcher bearers who had carried the mortally wounded General Woodgate back down the hill. Remember the general? He was in charge of the entire attack and had been wounded in the first few minutes. Gandhi and his volunteers marched 50 kilometers carrying badly wounded soldiers and officers. That's how far it was from the battlefield to the base hospital because the ambulances could not traverse the rocky terrain. Their march began at 8 o'clock in the morning for prompt arrival at the base hospital by 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Along the way, the volunteers tended the open wounds, redressed bandages, and administered medicines. There's an account of Gandhi's bearing during the Battle of Spionkorp. Vera Stent described the work in The Illustrated Star of Johannesburg, July 1911, as follows. My first meeting with Mr. M. Gandhi was under strange circumstances. It was on the road from Spionkorp after the fateful retirement of the British troops in January 1900. The previous afternoon, I saw the Indian mule train moved up the slopes of the Cop, carrying water to the distressed soldiers who had lain powerless on the plateau. The mules carried the water in immense bags, one on each side, led by the Indians at their heads. The galling rifle fire, which heralded their arrival at the top, did not deter the strange-looking cavalcade, which moved slowly forward, and as an Indian fell, another quietly stepped forward to fill the vacant place. Churchill and Gundy were to hate each other later, as Gundy fought for Indian independence. But right now they were allies. And Churchill wrote, It was on such occasions the Indians proved their fortitude, and the one with the greatest fortitude was the subject of the sketch a Mr. Gundy. After a night's work which had shattered men with much bigger frames, I came across Gandhi in the early morning sitting by the roadside, eating a Regulation Army biscuit. Every man in Bulla's force was dull and depressed, and damnation was heartily invoked on everything. But Gandhi was stoical in his bearing, cheerful and confident in his conversation, and had a kindly eye. He did one good. I saw the man and his small undisciplined corps on many a field during the Natal campaign. When succour was to be rendered, they were there. Not long after the Battle of Spionkop, the Indian Ambulance Corps was dissolved. Gandhi and 37 volunteers were recipients of the war medal that bore the Queen's portrait on one side and a helmeted Britannia on the other, summoned to her aid the men of South Africa, it read. Gandhi also received the Kesar E. Hind Gold Medal for his humanitarian work in South Africa and the Zulu War Medal for his renewed ambulatory services in 1906. He would later return these medals as a demonstration that he could, as he said, retain neither respect nor affection for such a government that continued to act in an unscrupulous, immoral and unjust manner towards their Indian subjects. So, the Speer desperate battle has ended. There are more to follow. However, Spion Corp was etched into a generation of British and South Africans, the memory of it, and would forever represent the folly of failure to understand warfare. Next week, we look at the arrival of Lord Roberts, who'd superseded General Redverse Buller as officer commanding the British Army Corps in South Africa. We'll also shift attention back to the southwest, back to the Cape, and see what's been transpiring there. I'm also going to focus on the Siege of Mafeking and what effect that had on a famous black South African, Sol Plaiki, who was one of the founders of the African National Congress. He, like Gandhi, worked closely with the British during the war and, like Gandhi, was let down afterwards when promises were not kept. But that's for the future. Please remember to check out the website abwarpodcast.com, our Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast, and you can also follow me on Twitter. At Des Latham. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>